that God would become a lamb, a sacrifice for the world. And that lamb of God is Jesus Christ, Yeshua, as he fulfills the word that God gave. As we look tonight, we see a description of what Jesus would be like in Isaiah chapter 42. Beginning at verse 1, he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, whom I uphold, my elect one, and whom my soul delights. So the Lord is looking in now, prophetically speaking through the prophet about the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one that was to come. And he's going to lay out for us the, the, the goal in his coming. Uh, in, in Isaiah and uh, further on as we get to Daniel, we see that he, can't, he comes to remove the people's sins, to put an end to transgression, to reign and rule. Now, we know all that's not done. It's not done because the prophetic word led us to a point. It said he's going to go up to this point. And at this point, Messiah, Mashiach, the king, Jesus, would be put to death. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. At that moment, we enter into what we know today as the time of the church. The time of the church has lasted 2,000 years. People look at it and they say, oh... Well, where is the coming of, that was prophesied? Jesus said he was going to come. Where is it? Since my fathers went to sleep, all things continue as they have. What did Peter tell us? Peter says, as to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And then he goes on to say, God's not slack concerning his promises. What's he waiting for? He's waiting that no one would perish. He's giving every opportunity for Every person to be saved. Well, Jackie, what about that guy? What about the pygmy in, in, in the Amazon? Well, I'll tell you. I've been in the Amazon and seen him. He's probably doing better than us. I mean, to be honest with you, the pastors I met in the Amazon down in the jungles, they took a Bible, they ripped out one book each, and they passed that one book around. They would canoe up the Amazon River for three and four days just to hear someone teach the Bible. I think they're doing okay. Do we have them all? No, but the book of Romans says every man is responsible for his understanding of who God is. The Lord says they can come to know me just by that desire to know me. And God is the righteous judge, isn't he? He knows who are his and who aren't. He says here, I will uphold the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Bible declares to us, Jesus Christ is God of very God. Okay? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The Lord, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father upholds the Son. The Holy Spirit empowers the Son, and the Son came. That's why Jesus could say to you and I, the things that you've seen me do, you can do. How many have ever made the excuse, well, of course Jesus did that. He's God. But you see, he was upheld by the Father's hand. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do all the things he did because he was God. He walked as a man to show you and I what could be done through a human, a man, totally committed and submitted to the Father. What did Jesus say? The words my Father speak, those only do I say. The word, the things my Father gives me to do, that's all I do totally committed and submitted to the Lord, he shows us the path to walk. What did he say? If any would come after me, what? He must take up his cross and follow me. 
John would tell us in in 1 John, if you want to abide in Christ, then you ought also to walk even as he walked, to follow his example. We're to be upheld by the Lord. How many times do we try to do the things we do by the power of our own might, by our own intelligence? We've got it all figured out. We know how all the pieces are going to go together. But it says here that he was upheld by the Father's hand. That means he pressed in. He, he leaned into the Lord that God was his support. The Father was everything that he needs. And he says, I have put my spirit upon him that he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And that word upon is a Greek word epi. This, it's in the Septuagint. It's the same concept that we read later on about believers. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when you ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and He's with you. But there is another empowering of the Spirit. It is the epi, the upon. The word epi is like this. If you view a glass of water with a pitcher next to it, right now the water is in the glass, right? When you take the pitcher and you continue to pour into that glass, it flows out of the glass. Now it's upon. The Spirit flows through our life and it affects people around us. It affects. It's like the water affects the table, the outside of the glass, the tablecloth, the things that surround it. The Holy Spirit will affect those who are empowered by Him. The, here we see the, the Father saying to the Son, I'll give you the Spirit, just like He gives to believers to do the work that He will do. Now, you might say, Jackie, you're crazy. No, I'm not. Philippians 2, 5 says, Let the mind of Christ be in you, who, being the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but He made Himself of no reputation. He emptied Himself. And He came in the likeness of a man, as a bondservant. That's what Philippians declares to us. He shows us the path that He wants us to walk. Have you ever felt like, yeah, yeah, you know, I just wish God could walk in my shoes and see what it's like. He did. He did. His name was Yeshua, Jesus, which means God is my salvation. And He showed us how to walk, how to deal with all the, the disappointments that life brings. But what's it say in verse 2? He will not cry out nor raise his voice. I find it interesting when we do a study of Jesus, when he came, when he was to be arrested, the soldiers didn't know what he looked like. Really? How could he not know what Jesus looked like? I mean, he was healing people. He was doing incredible things. But what happened? When Jesus was doing the work of the Father, the Father was glorified. God the Father was glorified. Nobody really thought about Jesus. So when the soldiers went to go arrest him, they had to get Judas to kiss him because they didn't know who to arrest. That's how well he fit in. He didn't go walking down the street, heal somebody and say, put a big billboard here. And we're going to say, Jesus Healing Ministries. And I'll put my face on it. And I want people to come. That they, is that what he did? No. He did not stand on the street corners with a bullhorn and shout to the people. He just came and didn't raise his voice. What else does that remind us of? As a lamb is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was 
beaten beyond recognition. When the Romans would whip a prisoner, sometimes, maybe you've heard of 39 lashes. 39 lashes really isn't a Roman tradition. The Roman tradition was simple. We're going to solve all the unsolved crimes. How are we going to do it? We're going to beat this guy as hard as we can. And everything he confesses, the beating will get lighter, a little bit easier, a little bit softer. But Jesus, the scripture said, open not his mouth. Why? Because he was taking upon himself the punishment for sin so that you and I could have a relationship with God. He took what was required upon his back so that we, by faith in him, would have a relationship with the Lord. He lays out for us in Isaiah 42, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's not going to be that guy that's all loud and boisterous. You ever seen those, for lack of a better term, obnoxious Christians? Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't stick out, but people wanted to be around him. People wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, to, me, <clears throat> to me, Jesus reminds me of, of what I picture in my mind as uh, an old cowboy. An old cowboy that you want to go hear stories from, that you want to go learn things from, that you want to be close to, that you, that you want to have. He's not standing on a street corner proclaiming his greatness or all the things he's ever done in his life. He's a pretty quiet guy. But people seek him out. That's the way Jesus was. People sought him out. And that's, again, what does he say? We're to follow him. That should be the path that we take. Not loud and obnoxious, but certainly willing to share the truth of of who Jesus Christ is. Look, he goes on. A bruised reed he will not break. Literally, that's a bent over reed. Uh, uh, It's like that, that cattail that the sun's been hot, the wind blew, and it just bent over. And it's never going to stand back up again. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like life has bent you over and you're not getting back up? You're just a bent over reed. But you know what he said about Jesus? He's not going to break it. He's not going to come up to that person and say, Man, you're such a blowout. I can't believe this and that has occurred in your life. You know what? Forget you and rip that thing off and give me one that's not bent. says a bent reed... He will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. You know that the Bible calls us to be on fire for the Lord. But have you ever felt like you're just smoldering? Well, that smoking flax, not quite a flame. He's not going to put it out. Folks, God is infinitely patient. If you read the Old Testament, the Genesis, uh, on through, about all that the Lord went through with the children of Israel... Trust me, he is not an impatient God. He's very patient. And he wants rather to come alongside and help get that fire burning. He doesn't want it to go out. He wants it ignited. He wants it to burn. But it says he's not going to come to put that out. He will bring forth judgment or justice for truth. Anybody ready for justice? Because we don't have any in our world. Turn on the news. We have any justice? None. Zip. The common sense has left the planet. I'm not sure it's coming back. But he said, the Lord, 
Jesus Christ, he's going to bring forth justice for truth. Wouldn't you like just once and for all the truth, to know the truth? I mean, who, you, who do you believe when you turn on TV? Who do you believe? They're all lying. Nobody's telling you the truth. Nobody's sharing the whole thing. But it says that Jesus, he, he's not afraid of the truth. He's not afraid to say, hey, this is what's real. Bring forth justice for truth. He can judge righteously because he's perfect and he knows. By looking at us, he knows everything about us. No question. He knows what he's doing. You and me, we're not so good. But he, he is amazing. Says he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Man, I like that verse where I can see it. Because there are things that happen and I get discouraged and I, and I look at <clears throat> what's going on or some atrocity or some, something that takes place in a family, some tragedy, and I get discouraged. I get to the point where I'm like, you know, I, I just as soon like to quit. And I like to look at this verse. Jesus is never discouraged. He will never stop. He will never quit. He's going to finish what he started. Being confident of this one thing. He who begun a good work in you will see it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to make sure that it takes place. He's going to establish justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait for his law. Now some of this he's already done, he's already done when he's come. But the Bible tells us he will come again. He will return. You ever wonder where they get the concept, the return of the king? I mean, think of all the, the literature in the past where you see it. King Arthur dies. What's he going to do? Come back. Where'd they get that idea? They just dream that up? The, the J.R. Tolkien, when he wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King, was that just something, you know, that it's an it's a age-long tale. The return of of the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's going to make all things right, who's going to set all things to right. Well, the Word of God tells us how that's going to take place, that it will take place, and it tells us we won't know when. Why does He tell us that? So you'll live every day like it's tomorrow. Because if you're looking for that, it changes how you live. I've known a number of people who unfortunately have gone to the doctor, visited with the doctor only to find out when their death day is. And they find out that, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with you. You've got about a month to live. Does that change how they look at every day? Man, dramatically. It, it alters everything. Dramatically changes. Well, how much more is it, rather than looking at the downside, let's look at the upside. We don't know the day when the Lord comes. So he says, live every day in readiness to be found ready for my return. So that we would live to be found doing those things that God wants us to do. I'm probably not going to be getting wasted if I really believe Jesus is coming back. That Jesus can call me home at any moment. I'm not going to be doing all these things that the Bible says is dissipation, waste of time. It says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, waste of time, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed, 
by the Spirit to do the work that Jesus has called us to do. That's what God is calling us to be. Verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth that it, and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the Spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. It's as though the Father is talking to the Son. And He's saying, listen, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a promise to the people. The promise of salvation. The promise of redemption. Do you know how far someone can go when they have hope? A long ways. When they don't have hope, it's real easy to give up. But when we have hope, man, we can press on. We can accomplish the things that the Lord is calling us to. He says, I will send you as a promise to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. The Messiah was not just given to the nation of Israel. The Messiah was given to the world. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the nation of Israel? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he's given as a covenant to all people. To do what? To open blind eyes. John chapter 9. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Have you ever seen someone stuck in darkness and enter into light through life with Jesus Christ? If you haven't, come Saturday nights. Celebrate recovery. Got a room full of folks who were trapped in the darkness in the prison house. Could not get out of bondage. And the Spirit of the Lord came and worked in their life. And today they are free. There they are. To set the prisoners free. Whenever I think of that phrase, I think of one person. You see, when Christ was brought before Pilate, Pilate wanted to give him back to the people, right? He said, listen, it's tradition that I give you back a prisoner. The people said, we don't want Jesus. Who did they call for? Barabbas. Tradition says both prisoners' names were Jesus. Jesus. Shall I release you Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the Father? What should I release to you? Give us Barabbas. What did Jesus just do? He just set a prisoner free. He set him free. What did Jesus do? He bore Barabbas' sin on the cross. He paid the price. Did Barabbas deserve it? Did he ask for it? Had he done anything worthy? No, neither did you or I. He set the prisoners free. He set them free. He unlocked the doors that held them and let them go. He says, I am the Lord, and that is my name. I am the Lord, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H. Silly people still fight over what the name of God is. Nobody knows. Nobody knows because the Hebrews only wrote the consonants down, especially in ancient Hebrew. Only consonants, that's all. So what do they have for the name of God? Y-H-V-H. From that, some people say it's Jehovah, but it couldn't be pronounced that way because there's no J in Hebrew. 
Yehovah. It could be Yehovah. Others say it's Yahweh. doesn't make any difference. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the name of God. One day, Jesus Christ returns and on Him is written a new name. Maybe it's the name we have all forgotten. Revelation chapter 19. When He comes back with that name. King of kings and Lord of lords. What do we know about the Yahweh? It means... I am the becoming one. That He is everything we need. That He is all we need. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carve images. Everything that is done should go glory to the Lord for what's done. Isn't that what we saw Jesus Christ do? Glory went to the Father. Behold... The former things have come to pass, and new things I will declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He's going to speak forth the prophetic word. In a couple of chapters, a hundred years before a man named Cyrus is born, Isaiah is going to name him Cyrus, the Lord's anointed to deliver the people out of bondage in Babylon. And who comes on the scene a hundred years later? Cyrus is born. Uh, a few years after that, when he comes into power, he's going to come in the Medo-Persian Empire, overthrow Babylon, and set the children of Israel free. God said, before it happened, it would happen. Daniel the prophet said that the amount of time from the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the Messiah walked through the gates would be 183,880 days. That's a shortcut. I'll just give you the answer. He lays out a mathematical prophecy of when Messiah would come in. That we know the declaration to rebuild Jerusalem, there is only one. Four declarations in totality, three to rebuild the temple. But what did the Bible say? Uh, the declaration to rebuild Jerusalem, only one. March 14th, 445 B.C. by King Xerxes. Ezra tells us about it. From March 14, 445 B.C., 183,880 days takes you to April 6, 32 A.D. Any idea who walked through the gates that day as the people laid down their coats and declared, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Jesus. Walked through the gates, just like the Bible said he would. The Lord says, I will tell you, New things I will declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. The Lord and the prophetic word. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. Immediately Isaiah the prophet goes into song, to a psalm. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing, Selah is Petra. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in, in the coastland. The Lord will go forth like a mighty man. He will stir up His zeal like a man of war. He will cry out, yes, shout aloud. He will prevail against His enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. 
Jesus was asked, what would it be like in the end times when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus said that those last days would be like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. How do labor pains come? A little bit at a time. But they grow in frequency. They grow in, in the uh, intensity. Intensity and frequency until what happens? There's birth that takes place. He says it's going to be like that. I love it here in Isaiah where he says, I've held my peace a long time. The Lord's patient, but don't make no mistake, God hates sin. He says, I've held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself, withholding judgment in the effort that men would repent and receive salvation. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills, dry up all their vegetation, make their rivers a coastland. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. What's he talking about? Listen, he's looking ahead now, and he's, and he's speaking about when he returns. Jesus came once as a lamb. He's not coming as a lamb again. One time. Remember, Moses was told to smite the rock. And when he smote the rock, water flowed through and watered the children of Israel. The next time, what was he told to do the rock? Speak. Why? Because the rock's only beaten once. Who's the rock? 1 Corinthians 10 says, the rock is Jesus Christ. How many times will he come to be beaten? Once. The second time he comes, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. You ever seen a lion? We had a lion at camp. Just a wee little mountain lion. Just a wee little thing. But it'll rattle you to the core when you realize that thing can pretty much do whatever it wants. I mean, all I have in my pocket is a pick, a guitar pick. Even if I use my best ninja move and I flung that pick, it's not going to do nothing to that lion. Right? A lion strikes fear in the hearts of men. A lamb, not so much. You ever seen a lamb on a cold, dark night and got afraid? It's a lamb. No. Because Jesus Christ came in peace, but the second time to make war, to take back what's his. The world and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. And he will come back, and he will take that and that's what he's looking to here he's looking to that when he says i will bring the blind by a way they did not know the book of revelation says that the kings of the east are going to come against the antichrist and the way that they're going to come against the antichrist is that god is going to dry up the euphrates river now that's a pretty big river but when the lord dries up the euphrates he makes a path for the kings of the east as they come down against the Antichrist. Here the Antichrist is poised to destroy Israel, and he hears that the kings of the east are coming, and he turns to make war with them, and they meet in the plain. You know what it's called? Everybody knows what it's called. Har Megiddo. The Mount of Megiddo, or Armageddon. And that's what he's talking about. I'm going to lead a people a way they didn't know. I'm going to open up a path for them. 
I'm going to guide them to that place. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. Why is he doing that? Why does he bring that army down in that way? Because the Antichrist is poised to destroy the children of Israel. And during the tribulation period, God has turned his attention back to Israel. He made a promise in Romans 9, 10, and 11. All of Israel will be saved. God said, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to take care of whoever takes care of them. I'll take care of any of those who... Jesus said it like this. When you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it where? Unto me. So he's going to take care of the nation of Israel in this way. I will not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are gods. The Lord saying, hey, if you put your faith in me, these are the things that are going to happen. But if you put your faith and trust in idols, you will be ashamed. You ever had your hope and trust in something that didn't last? I have. We want to put our hope and trust in that which is lasting, that which remains. Then in verse 18, he says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now, the Lord is no longer talking about his servant, the Messiah. Now, he's talking about his servant, Israel, the people. Here's what he says about them. Listen, who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger, as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but he does not hear. You ever known people like that? You try to show them something. There's an old saying, you lead a horse to water, but what? Can't make him drink. Well, that's what the Lord's saying here. Hey, you are deaf, dumb, and blind. I tell you, I show you, but I cannot bend your will to mine. Why? Because that is where human responsibility takes place. That's where we have choice. God can do all these things, lead us to that point. But man must make the choice. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this people is robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers, for plunder and no one says restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? You ever known a people group in the history of the world more persecuted than the Jew? There's no way. Hated everywhere they went. Still today, you realize that they, a Jewish person cannot go to Dubai? Not welcome. Can't come. Stay home. Go on the website for Dubai and see as they look through all the money currency. Look for what's missing. You won't find a shekel. They're not welcome. And that's not the only place. So many places where the... Why is there this extreme hatred for the Jew across the world and throughout history? Why? Well, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that when the woman who was in travail gave birth to the child, the red dragon sought to destroy the child, but the child was harpazoed, raptured up into heaven. So then he turned his attention to the people, the nation. 
And he hates them. It's a demonic hatred wherever they go. They are hated in Russia. For a long time, Russians wouldn't even let them go. Wouldn't let them return to their, their homeland. Why? Well, Gorbachev said he didn't want his country to go through a brain drain. Isn't that weird? You know, everywhere you go, the, the Jewish people have excelled. Everywhere they've been. Do you know how many Fortune 500 companies are in Israel? How much computer technology is developed in Israel? It's, it's amazing to me when you just begin to look at all the blessings that have been on that nation and then realize all the mass hatred. For what did they do? They're not any more annoying than any one of us. But yet, why is that? Because it's a demonic hatred from the enemy. Who gave Jacob for plunder in Israel to the robbers? Who was it that allowed all that to take place? It says right here, was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned. The Lord left them into that place. Who is it that allowed whatever is in your life to come into your life? God wasn't sleeping when it happened. The Lord allowed it. Only two reasons God allows anything in your life. For your good, His glory. He calls us to trust Him. To trust and believe and obey. For they would not walk in His ways, nor were they obedient to His law. The, peop the people, the nation, didn't want to receive, didn't want to walk, didn't want to do the things that they did. So what happened? They fall in hard times. Why do they fall in hard times? Because in the midst of persecution, what do you do? You call on the name of the Lord. It doesn't have to be that way. It just is. It's how we're made. When times are good, what do we do? We spend on ourselves. When times are bad, what do we do? Call on the name of the Lord. So what do we think we're going to have more of? Hard times. Why? Because it keeps us close to God. God knows how we're built. He knows how we're he never, Nowhere in this book does he say, I've come to give you an easy kickback life. He said, I've come to give you an abundant life. The word for abundant means a life that cannot be extinguished, that won't give up, that won't quit. Isn't that what we saw in Jesus? That's the life we have when we place our faith and trust in Him. Therefore, verse 25, He poured on Him the fury of His anger and the strength of the battle. It has set Him on fire all around. Yet He did not know, and it burned Him. Yet He did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel. I love it when God does both names. Do you know that the Bible says we have two natures? Two natures within us, the flesh and the spirit. Old man, new man. The bad guy, the good guy. White dog, black dog. Whatever you want to decipher it, you have within you Jacob and Israel. Jacob is the liar, the cheater, the thief. Israel is the one who is governed by God. They're the same person. You mean that which is governed by God can be a liar and a thief and a no good, downright scoundrel? Absolutely, we all are. And when God names it, it helps us remember where we come from. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. It wasn't because I was so good. It was because I couldn't have a relationship with him any other way. I made you, Jacob. I made you and formed you, Israel. Then listen, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by your name. You are mine. Man, isn't that awesome? You know what I love? Scripture declares to us all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. What's that mean? It applies. You are mine. Sometimes we're Jacob, sometimes we're Israel. But we're his. We're his. And God is able to save us to the uttermost. From the guttermost to the uttermost. He is able. Even as he says here. See back in in 42 verse 24. For they could not walk in his ways. Nor were they obedient to his laws. But in a few verses. Fear not. Fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. Did they redeem themselves? He said I have redeemed you. Fulfilling the prophecy that Abraham gave. That God would become the Lamb. That he would sacrifice himself. God will provide himself the lamb. And he goes on. On this mountain he will do it. What mountain? The mountain that Abraham offered his son. What's the name of that mountain? Mount Moriah. You know what else is on the top of Mount Moriah? Or pretty close to the top of Mount Moriah. If you come with me to Israel next year, you can see it. On the, almost to the top of Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. It's where the Dome of the Rock is today. It's where the temple of the Lord, temple of the nation of Israel, used to stand. Now if I follow the top of that mountain off of the Temple Mount and around a little bit to the left, I come to a craggy old rock at the tip. Or they call it today the place of the skull. Golgotha. Where another father offered his son. Where God so loved the world that he gave. His son on the same place, on the same mountain, he gave the sacrifice. The word of God. God says, I I will tell you the end from the beginning. Take a look at what I say and you will see it. You will see it all come to pass. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Interesting, isn't it? Which came first, Isaiah or Daniel? I'll help you. Isaiah. Isaiah. Remember the story in Daniel? Three Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael were their Hebrew names. What happened when they were thrown in the fire? Didn't get burned. What did God say? Way back with Isaiah. Hey, Right now, Hezekiah is king in Israel. After Hezekiah comes Manasseh. Manasseh is going to rule for a long time. It's a long ways from Manasseh till Daniel is taken captivity to Babylon. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pass through the fire. But here the Lord says, hey, you'll pass through the fire. You won't be burned. You'll walk through the rivers. You're not going to drown. I'll hold your hand. I'll guide you through. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What was that? You know that the New Testament says, There is only one name by which you must be saved. You know what it is? At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is 
Yahweh, Lord, God, deity. What did he say here? He says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, which is a title for the Messiah, your Savior. Jesus Christ is God. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. From 70 A.D. to 1948, Israel did not have a homeland. No other people group on the planet has existed for nearly 2,000 years without a homeland and retained their personality and their language ever in the history of the world. No one. What did the Lord say? I will call them back from the east, from the west, from the north. I will say, give them up. You know who's north of Israel? Russia. Remember, Russia wouldn't let them go. But God says, I'm going to say, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Do you know in 1948 started the greatest exodus of Jews back to the homeland? Fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38. Fulfillment of God's the, the prophecy that Israel would become a nation again. There was a... There was a, a A thing taking place in, in Prussia. In Prussia, they were having a debate on whether or not God could be proven. They had two guys speaking. One of them was Voltaire. You remember Voltaire? Voltaire, he, he's the one who said, 100 years after my death, there'll be no Bibles in all of Europe. Christianity will cease to exist. And 100 years from his death, there's a United Bible Society in his home printing Bibles. His prophetic word wasn't too good. But his opponent was asked, prove to me that God exists. And he says, I can prove to you that God exists in two words. The Jew. And he sat down. People that didn't have a homeland for 2,000 years. Do we know what nationality we are? I mean, I guess I could go figure it out, but most of the time I just say I'm an American. What's that mean? I'm I'm a mutt. I'm mixed with a bunch of stuff. How old is our nation? 200 years. Any of us retain our nationality? Not very many. Oh, I mean, we may hold on to the fact that we're Italian or, or, or we're this or we're that. But in reality, not really. Not in the United States. We don't see that. In, in the nation of Israel, it's incredible. Incredible prophetic word that God would bring them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let him bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. What's he say? Who else can tell the end from the beginning? Get him out here. Everybody wants to say, Nostradamus. I mean, Nostradamus, yeah, he made a lot of neat little prophecies. In fact, he only missed Hitler's name by one letter. He said his name was going to be Hitler. 
Oh, how many letters does it take to be wrong? Huh, funny how that is. I suppose if he'd have got four letters wrong, then we wouldn't worry about it. But since it was only one, what's the Bible say? It would be perfect. If you were wrong at all, you're a false prophet. Was the, was the Bible wrong when it named Cyrus by name? Was the Bible wrong when it told us the exact day the Messiah would walk through? Was the Bible wrong when it said that there were Hebrew youths that could walk through fire? Was the Bible wrong any of the prophetic word that's been given? Was the Bible wrong when it said that Israel would cease to be a nation and become a nation again? It wasn't even one letter off. It's perfect. The Lord says, bring them out. Test them. Match them up to me. Match them up to me. Not one prophecy false. Not one throughout the scripture. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is, what? No Savior. We're going to stop there tonight. But listen, here's what he just said. He just said, Mormonism is wrong. Before me there was no God formed. Neither will there be any God after me. There is not, there's no such thing as Two truths. You cannot hold up in your religion and say, we believe the Word of God and we believe the Book of Mormon. They don't fit. They don't. Never was intended to. Before me, there was no God formed. Well, what about the God of this planet and the God of the next planet? And later on, when I become a God, my planet. And I'm not trying to ridicule it, but what does it say? That there will be other gods, what? Formed. Beside me, there is no other god formed. No, neither will there be any after me. One god. Hebrew word for one is echad. Echad. Unified in purpose. Father, Son, Spirit. One god. Beside me, no other. And there is no other Savior. Who is the Savior? Jesus. There's only one name by which man must be saved. That's what the Bible says. Only one name. What's the name? The name of Jesus. The Lord Almighty God says there is no other Savior but me. What does it mean? God is in some way existent in three separate persons. The Scripture teaches. Father, Son, Spirit. One God. The word for one is the same word for one cluster of grapes. Give me one cluster of grapes. Lots of grapes on it though, huh? The word used here is echad. Unified. One God together. Coexistent. Three separate and distinct personalities. Yet one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Doesn't make any sense. Sorry. You tell God when you see Him. I'm just telling you what the Word says. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I suppose if God would fit in your box, then maybe He wouldn't be God. If you would be able to understand all the mysteries of the, of the world, do you understand them all now? I don't understand. How's that atom bomb work? 
How do they separate an atom and blow this giant explosion and then how does it stop? I don't know. Does that mean it doesn't exist? No. We've seen the effects of it, haven't we? Do I understand all the world's mysteries? Nope. Don't understand them. Does that mean they're not real? Does that mean it can't be true? Scripture declares He is the only God, one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. One in purpose, one in unity. He is one. Yet, Genesis 1 1 starts with what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the word for God there? Elohim. Huh. You know the curious thing about Elohim? It's plural. The word for God is El. Multiple or plurality, Elohim. You know, everywhere in Scripture, the word God is a, is a plural word used in singular form. It's horrible for linguistics. They say it doesn't make any sense how they use this word. It does when you understand three persons, one God. Let us create man in our image. It's right there in the first book. We get past chapter 1, we're good to go, right? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to have... Actually, don't stand with me. Go ahead and stay seated. We're going to have a time of prayer. We try to close every uh, Sunday night with just an opportunity for prayer. No more worship. We're just going to call on the name of the Lord. As the Lord leads you, pray. If, if you're not able to hang out and stay and you've got to go, God bless you. We understand. But we want to provide an opportunity for folks just to, to lift up their cares and concerns to the Lord praise reports, whatever it might be. All we ask is you try to keep your prayer to around three to five minutes so as many people are here are able uh, to also be a part of that as well. And when it's quiet for a while, then we'll, uh, we'll close it out.